Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 131. The book of Psalms, Psalm number 131. We're in the middle of a very short series in the Psalms this summer. The focus of these sermons is on the believer's experience. The believer's experience, his or her experience of God, of sin, of grace, of repentance and faith, of trial and discouragement, of suffering, of joy, of praise, and all the other ingredients that make up the believer's experience. In 1965, the famous 20th century British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones published a book on Christian experience, which is something of uh, a little masterpiece, really. The title of the book is Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. Now, you don't have to be depressed to appreciate the book. More broadly, the book is on Christian experience in all of its diverse and varied dimensions. Well, in the book, in the first chapter, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes some remarks about the Psalms themselves, very first lines of the book. He says this, The simplest description of the Psalms is that they were the inspired prayer and praise book of Israel. They are the revelations of truth, not abstractly, but in the terms of human experience. The truth revealed is wrought into the emotions, desires, and sufferings of the people of God by the circumstances through which they pass. It is because that is such a true description of them that the Psalms have always proved to be a great source of solace and encouragement to God's people throughout the centuries. Here we are able to watch noble souls struggling with their problems and with themselves. They talk to themselves and to their souls, bearing their hearts, analyzing their problems, chiding and encouraging themselves. Sometimes they are elated, other times depressed, but they are always honest with themselves. That is why they are of such real value to us if we also are honest with ourselves. I think it's a wonderful description for why so many Christians find the Psalms to be so helpful, so convicting, so perennially relevant to our lives. And I appreciate especially the last words of that quote from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. They're helpful to us only if we are honest with ourselves, if we're honest with God. So I encourage you this morning, as we consider Psalm 131, be honest with yourself. Open up your heart to God that he might know you, that he might help you. Don't be afraid of examining what you might find there and going to God and asking him to work in your heart this morning. May we be honest with ourselves and with God. Well, that's a comment about the Psalms generally. Now we turn to Psalm 131 in particular. And here in Psalm 131, very short Psalm, three verses, David sort of opens up his heart, his experience of God, and he invites us in. He invites us to the inner chambers of his soul to view his spiritual experience. And then he turns to Israel, to God's people, and invites them to experience what he's experienced. Look with me at Psalm 131, if you would. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This psalm is about David's possession 
of a calm and quiet and contented soul. It's about his personal composure of himself, of his self-mastery, of his self-possession in the midst of all the chaos and hardship that surrounded his life and that of the kingdom of Israel. And oh, was there chaos and turmoil that surrounded David's life and that surrounded the nation of Israel when this psalm would have been penned. The psalm is about becoming still and quiet before the Lord in the face of unanswered questions about life and about God. It's about humility. It's about hope. And it's about where hope may be found. I appreciate what David Pallison has said about this text. He says, Psalm 131 is show and tell for how to become peaceful inside. Psalm 131 is the show and tell of how to become peaceful inside. And oh, how badly we need this. In a world marked by so much unrest, so much restlessness, so much chaos, uh, do, do you see people in your life that just seem to walk around with this pervasive, uh, all-encompassing peace that governs their lives in the midst of hardship and chaos? I don't see that very often. But here we have in Psalm 131 the recipe, uh, uh, the show and tell of how we, like David, can become peaceful inside there was a wonderful Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs, lived in the 17th century. I just finished reading a biography of his life. It was titled, A Life of Gospel Peace. Isn't that a wonderful way to describe a Christian's life? A life of gospel peace. It's obtainable for anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book for which he's most famous today. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Uh, the ladies who attend our, our women's brunch uh, next month, uh, I think it's August 11th is the date we have in the bulletin for that. You're going to hear all about this book, The Rare Jewel uh, of Christian Contentment, as we consider it together uh, uh, that day. But the entire book itself, it's about a couple hundred pages, the entire book is a reflection on a contemplation of Paul's words in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 12. I'll just read them for you. Philippians 4.11b, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, there's this powerful and perceptive analogy that Jeremiah Burroughs uses toward the beginning of that book to get his point across. And he wants to highlight in this quote, I'm about to read for you, the differences between contentment that comes from without, perhaps from material things, pleasant circumstances, a wonderful relationship, contentment that is derived from things that come from without and contentment that comes from within, namely the sort of peace that God himself imparts to a Christian. So here's the quote from Burroughs. To be content as a result of some external thing, money, material things, relationships, a job, etc. To be content as a result of some external thing is like warming a man's clothes by the fire. But to be content through an inward disposition of soul is like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the natural heat of his body. A man who is healthy in body puts on his clothes and perhaps at first on a cold morning they feel cold, but after he has had them on a little while they are warm. Now how did they get warm? They were not near the fire. No, this came from the natural heat of his body. Now when a sickly man, the natural heat of whose body has deteriorated, puts on his clothes, they do not, they do not get hot 
after a long time. He must warm them by the fire, and even then they will soon be cold again. The warmth of the fire, that is, a contentment that results merely from external things, will not last long. But that which comes from the gracious temper of one's spirit, that spirit that God gives to the Christian, comes from the gracious temper of one's spirit, that contentment will last. When it comes from the spirit of a man or woman, that is true contentment. He's talking about possessing a contented soul that warms the Christian from within. So she doesn't need anything else. She's got God in there. She's got peace in there. She's got salvation and hope and refuge in her soul. She doesn't need external things. Her contentment wells up from within her, not from her, but from within her. What God has done in there through grace by imparting himself to her and giving to her the grace of contentment in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I want to borrow from Mr. Burroughs this morning by titling this sermon, not the rare jewel of Christian contentment, but more specifically, the rare jewel of a quiet soul. The rare jewel of a quiet soul. Now listen, there's overlap between the Christian contentment of Philippians 4 that Burroughs was working with and the, the, the quiet soul of Psalm 131 that we're working with this morning. Uh, but, but the contentment there in Philippians 4 and the quiet soul in Psalm 131, they're not precisely the same thing. And so I've altered the title just a bit, The Rare Jewel of a Quiet Soul. Now I call it a rare jewel because we don't find this thing in our day very often. A man or woman possessed with a quiet and contented soul. One that just delights and hopes in the Lord. Undisturbed by the headlines, not thrown about by circumstances, not agitated by every new trial, not endlessly spinning and churning with anxieties and fears and worry, just calm and quiet, just still and content in the lap of God. That's a very rare thing, and may it not be so rare. I call it a rare jewel because it's an exceedingly precious thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a valuable thing. In fact, now this is I, not the Lord, saying this, so I'll step away from the podium. How about that? 1 Peter 3, perhaps, ladies, you're very familiar with this text, talks about uh, uh, women don't adorn yourselves uh, uh, with, with fancy braided hair and gold jewelry and things like that. But what is it that God finds so precious? It is the hidden person of the heart. It is a, a gentle and quiet soul. Now, I happen to think that that admonition from Peter does not apply only to women. In that context, he's applying it only to women who might find their worth maybe in material things who are tempted by that. And he says, no, no, no. The hidden person of the heart is what you're after. A gentle and quiet soul. I think Peter is saying nothing other than apply Psalm 131 to yourself and your view of material things, ladies, in this particular context. Here in Psalm 131, the, the audience is not limited. It's all of God's people. We're all meant to pursue a gentle and quiet and calm soul before the Lord. And what does Peter say in 1 Peter 3? He says, ladies, pursue that hidden person of the heart, that gentle and quiet soul, for this is very precious in the sight of God. It's a rare jewel. It's a precious thing. And may God help us this morning and throughout our lives, our days, to possess the rare jewel of a quiet soul. So here's how we'll open up the text this morning. Three headings. Three verses. First heading, we'll consider the proud heart. That's verse 1. 
Secondly, we'll consider the quiet soul of verse 2. And then thirdly and finally, the summons to God's people, which is found in verse 3. And that third point will be very brief. First of all, the proud heart, or more specifically, David's renunciation of a proud heart. He says this, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Three lines that all describe a proud heart and a proud self-will. Let's look at each one. First of all, David says, my heart is not lifted up. Literally, it's not high or exalted. I have not elevated myself to a high station, David is saying. He's renouncing self-exaltation. This is David's understanding of himself. He understands his place. He doesn't seek to place himself uh, on an inordinately high pedestal. His heart is not lifted up. His heart is not proud. Now, in the Bible, the idea of height corresponds to status and dignity. Still somewhat in our culture, but, but, but more so then. So the Lord is said to be high and lifted up. That's an indication of his status, of his rank, of his office, of his dignity and his worth. He dwells in the high and holy place, Isaiah tells us. And so height, uh, when inordinately ascribed to a person or thing, is pride. If I elevate myself to a place that I should not occupy, if I, if I insist on having a high rank or high status that, that I ought not to have, that is pride. And David's saying, I'm not allowing myself to do that. I'm checking my heart. My heart is not lifted up. It's not high. I'm not exalting myself. David says, I don't accord myself a high status before God or before others. Second line in verse 1, my eyes are not raised too high. Very similar idea. David doesn't view himself as occupying this high station from whence he can look down on other people. Think about height, right? Uh, my eyes are up here. I can look down at other people. We still use that language, looking down on others. You view yourself as so high, so haughty, and you look down your nose at others. David says, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not letting my eyes be up here where I can look down on my fellow men. I can put myself on a plane with God. I know my place. On par with my brothers and sisters and under the rule and the sovereign hand of God. He's renouncing self-importance and a certain preoccupation with self. He doesn't view himself as superior to other people. And then the third line in verse 1. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That word occupy myself, I don't occupy myself, literally means I don't come and go thinking of things too great and too difficult for me and concerning myself with those things. I don't live my life in a way that's preoccupied with things too great too marvelous for me. Now, I don't know what's in your mind when you hear that language. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What does David have in mind there? Well, he doesn't mean, I just don't think about like really great thoughts. I don't contemplate really wonderful things like God, for example. That's obviously not the case. Actually, what that word marvelous more literally means is, is difficult or hard, or impossible. I don't occupy myself with things too great, too impossible for me, too difficult for me, things that are beyond my grasp, things that, as a, as a, a finite human being, I shouldn't really be concerning myself with. I'm not putting myself up there with God. I don't, I don't believe I'm in a place to scrutinize Him and His ways. I, 
I don't have answers to all of life's questions. I don't concern myself with things too great and too high for myself. Now, now what exactly are the sorts of things David might have in mind when he says that? What will be those things that would be too great, too difficult for David? Well, he doesn't tell us. I think we could speculate. Could it be that God had brought into David's life some perplexing trials, some hard providences, and David's trying to make heads or tails of this, and he can't see the purpose that it serves? I know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, but what, what purpose is this serving? David had children who cursed his name. David had children who died. He had to bury his kids. All sorts of trial and unrest in the kingdom of Israel. And he's looking at this and he's thinking, now, I'm perplexed by all this. Why is God bringing me through this? Why is God bringing these circumstances into my life? And he says to himself, I'm not going to occupy myself with things too great and too difficult for me. Perhaps there were philosophical questions, theological questions that David had about God and about life and about his word. I don't understand this. This isn't making sense to me. I want answers to my questions. Maybe he's like those in Romans 9. Paul anticipates this. He's talking about the mystery of election. He anticipates questions that people might ask. And he says, Romans 9 verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? There are questions you can't ask. Answers you have no right demanding from the Almighty. Should the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? You might think of Job. Asking God, why is this in my life? What does this mean about God and cosmic justice? And these questions are flooding his mind. And it's interesting. To this day, Job doesn't have any answers to that question. God never gave him any answers in the book of Job. Just had to humble himself. Now maybe if you believe that upon death, God shows you the books of your life, you know, as a soul who is with him, maybe he's got it figured out now, but maybe not. We still know, possibly more than Job knows, about why those trials were in his life. He never gets answers to them. And David says, perhaps in light of these sorts of questions, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too difficult for me. Whatever he has in mind, we know there are things that are beyond his grasp, things that he can't understand, and so he humbles himself before the will of God. That, that may mean I have unanswered questions. That means that there are going to be perplexing trials and providences in my life that I find so difficult and hard to, to work out, but I know my place. My heart's not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too difficult for me. I'm going to be quiet before the Lord. I appreciate what one of the commentators has said, commenting on this final section here, final line. He says, quote, this man isn't noisy inside. He isn't busy, busy, busy. Not obsessed. Not on edge. The to-do list and pressures to achieve don't consume him. Ambition doesn't churn inside. Failure and despair don't haunt him. Anxiety isn't spinning him into free fall. He isn't preoccupied with thinking up the next thing he wants to say. Regrets don't corrode his inner experience. Irritation and dissatisfaction don't devour him. He's not stumbling through the minefield of blind longings and fears. He's quiet. David says to the Lord, I am not self-trusting, opinion, and headstrong. I am not superior to others. I am not attempting the impossible. David in this text is presenting a sober-minded view of himself of his own station before God and before others. It's like David has this perfect moment of clarity. 
He says, you know what? I'm not all that. Uh, I'm not some great self-important person. I don't belong up there with God scrutinizing him and demanding answers to my questions. I'm not greater than my fellow man. I know my place. I know my station. I know where I stand in relation to God. He's God and I'm not. I know the relationship in which I stand with my fellow brothers and sisters in the kingdom of Israel. We're on par with one another. I'm not greater than anybody else. I know my place. And I've not exalted myself to an inordinately high pedestal, an inordinately high place. I think this sort of self-awareness is vital to biblical humility. A proper sense of self, a proper understanding of our station before God and before others. Some of you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis, the uh, famous 20th century writer, novelist, apologist. Wonderful man in so many ways. I recommend a lot of his uh, books. He has this very well-known line about uh, humility. Uh, He says, humility is not so much thinking less about yourself. Humility is not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Now, that's a spectacularly pithy line. Unfortunately, it's not true at all. Humility in the Bible absolutely entails that we think less of ourselves. That we demote our hearts just a little bit. That we knock ourselves down a few pegs. Isn't that what David's doing? I'm not way up here. That's not me. I need to think less about myself. I'm not God. I'm not better than anybody else. So humility comes to us and says, who do you think you are strutting around like that? You're not better than anybody else. You're a redeemed sinner at best. Job says, I'm a worm before God. I can't scrutinize him and demand my way and, 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 and concern myself with questions of cosmic justice. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I need to knock myself down a little bit. Doesn't humility come to our hearts and say that to us? Get down. Put yourself under the mighty hand of God. Demote yourself a little bit. You're not all that. You're not God's gift to humanity. I think that's integral to what humility is. It absolutely involves that we come off our high horse and we recognize who we are. And almost always that's going to mean knocking ourselves down a few pegs and thinking less about ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong. Humility is not self-loathing or self-hate. You know, I'm just the worst person in the history of the world. It's not that. But doesn't it require this sort of sober assessment of who I am I'm a sinner before the Lord. I'm just a humble creature. And I can't tell the Creator how to run His business. And I think that's part of what David is telling us this morning. Uh, One other thing I'll note about the proud heart before we move on. I think we should appreciate that David, in this text, is deliberately limiting himself. There's a note of self-restraint here. Maybe I'm reading into the text a little bit. Don't think so. He says... There's a way I could have acted, right? I could have elevated myself. I could have sought to promote myself. I could look down on others. I could occupy myself with things too great and too difficult for me, but I'm not going to do it. He knows where the limits are. He had to take stock of where he was before the Lord, and he says, you know what? I'm not going to be lifted up. I'm not going to exalt myself. I'm not going to occupy myself with questions that are too great for me. And though he recognizes that might mean that he has questions that will go unanswered, that there are matters he just won't be able to look into and understand from God's perspective. He's quiet and he's content. 
I will renounce a proud self-will. I will renounce a proud heart. There's a resolution for David. This is how I will be before the Lord. Well, now secondly, and really more importantly, let's consider the quiet soul. The quiet soul, and this is in verse 2. But I have calmed, or stilled, and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So David renounces pride, but there's more internal work to be done. So what does he do? Well, David, in verse 2, composes himself. He instructs himself. And he undertakes to calm and quiet his soul before the Lord. David models for us here self-possession, self-mastery, self-control before the Lord. He didn't just get a grip. He didn't say, well, you know, I retreated, had a great vacation, I meditated a lot, and I just sort of, sort of got a grip. No, he takes himself in hand and he speaks to himself. He exercises self-control and self-mastery before the Lord, and he obtains inner peace. So a few questions I want to ask about the quiet soul. The first is this. How did David calm and quiet his soul? How did he do it? If Psalm 131 is the show and tell of how to become peaceful inside, I want to figure this out. How can I have that peace? How can I have a calm and quiet soul? How did David arrive at this place where he has a calm and quiet soul? Well, this, this here is huge. Remember, because this is the show and tell of how we too can become calm and quiet. How did David do it? This is the answer, okay? Through internal soul conversations. Through internal soul conversations. Through inward maneuvers of the soul. Through preaching truth to oneself. Through applying truth to the heart, through inward soul conversations. Well, what do I mean by that? Apparently David, the emphasis on his activity, I calmed and quieted my soul. David took himself in hand, and he instructed himself, he controlled himself. People have the power to do this, and David did this with himself. Now I want to read another quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his book, spiritual depression. And if you've read the book, this is like the classic quote. If you've not read the book or ever heard this quote, or if, moreover, you've never been introduced to this idea and this way of thinking about the Christian life, I just want to encourage you, give it its day in court. And allow it the opportunity, as you hear it read here for the first time, to, to revolutionize your inner Christian life and how you think about spiritual experience. When I first was introduced to this idea, it, it did that for me. So Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he's commenting here on Psalm 42, verse 11, very similar to our text in Psalm 131. Psalm 42, 11 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Not calm, not quiet, but a lot of unrest in there. And the psalmist writes, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So that's in the background of this quote from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he says, quote, The main trouble... In this whole matter of spiritual depression, or we could say Christian experience, in a sense is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life 
is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. See, his soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And then Lloyd-Jones pauses and says, Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. He's a Brit, so he can just insult you and you thank him for it. Okay? goes on to say, The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of murmuring in this depressed and unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself, and this is the key issue, you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. And then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance, and my God. I think what Dr. Lloyd-Jones is talking about unlocks storehouses of spiritual gems and jewels. He opens to us the richness that can be had in Christian experience. If we could learn this art of talking to ourselves. So let's do this with our text. David says, I'm not occupied with things too great and too marvelous for me. I'm not anxious about the future. I'm not concerning myself with all these great and weighty matters. If I listened to myself, allowed myself to talk to me, I'd be prideful, I'd be cranky, I'd be self-obsessed, I'd be exalting myself, possessed with self, I would be anxious, I would be depressed, I would be all these things. But David says, I take myself in hand, this is what I do, and I calm and quiet my soul. I speak to myself. If I were to allow myself to talk to me, I would be anxious about the stock market. I would be irritated by American politics. I would be anxious about the future and whether or not my kids are going to have everything that they need and want in life. If I just let myself talk to me, I'd be a hypochondriac, obsessed with health, obsessed with wealth, obsessed with prosperity. But I talk to myself and I say, self, get down. Be at peace. Calm yourself. Remember the Lord. Hope in Him. Derive your contentment, your delight, your joy, your satisfaction from Him. Hope thou in God. And listen, Christian, through the redeemed nature we have in Christ, we have the power to do this. It is a fallacy of our generation. It is a lie from Satan himself that says, I just can't control myself. These things just come upon me. I can't help but get offended. Oh, I can't help but be anxious about money. I, I just can't help but be obsessed with my health. Yes, you can. 
through the Lord Jesus Christ who said to the storms, peace be still, he gives us the power through him to say to the storms of our heart, peace be still. Get down. Be calm. Be quiet. The Lord is yours. Hope thou in him. Don't, don't wrestle over these trifles and these anxieties that will pass. Hope thou in God. Brothers and sisters, we have the power to do this. But this is what it takes. Self-control, self-mastery, self-possession. Taking ourselves in hand and speaking to ourselves. Calling to mind the truth of God's word. It's a term that used to be used. It's not really politically correct anymore, but you'd hear like ranchers or cowboys or people who just love horses for any reason. They would use this language. You'd have a wild horse, right? And, and a, a gifted, mature, uh, uh, I forget the name of like professional horse people. We'll just say an equine specialist, okay? Uh, 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 he, he would say, I have to break the horse. What that means is you'd have to mount the horse and then that thing would thrash about, it would be wild, it would be jumping all over, but, but after mastering that horse, you could break its will, and then it will go wherever you want it to go, and it won't thrash about, and it will no longer be wild. We have to do that with our hearts. So much unrest, so much anxiety, thrashing about, we have to mount our hearts by grace and experience self-mastery. We have to learn how to break our proud self-will and bring it low, that we might know calm and quiet and peace. We need to learn what it means to preach to self, to seek to silence self, to master self, and this is what David did. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Second question of the quiet soul, what is a calm and quiet soul? What is it? Very simply, it's a soul contented in God, satisfied in Him. It is to be at peace inwardly, it is to assume a humble posture before God and to possess inner calm in the midst of all of life's storms and trials. Now, listen, this is not detached stoicism. Like, I'm going to go off in the desert for a while and mutter some things and put on some nice music, and then I'll, I'll just, I'll be good. I'll be calm, I'll be quiet. I'm going to go to the spa. It's not at all what David's talking about. Rather, it's an utterly realistic peace and tranquility in the midst of chaos. It's joy in the midst of pain. It's peace in the midst of trial. Remember, David, David lost his children. David had children that cursed him. David experienced civil war. David experienced his own sin in really profound ways. And yet in the midst of all that, he says, I had a calm and quiet soul. Again, I think David Pallison is helpful here. He says this, quote, To quiet your soul means to silence the noise and the tumult. It is to whisper hush to your desires, fears, opinions, anxieties, agendas, and irritabilities. This sort of composure and quietness is not apathy, but alertness. It is conscious, not unconscious. It is the equanimity of self-mastery by grace, not the equanimity of sleepy ease. If you ask any secularist or modern-day spiritualist, you say, I want to become calm and quiet. You do yoga or something like that. What do you do in yoga? You empty your mind. That's the point. Just empty it. Go to your happy place, whatever they say. No offense if you do yoga. I don't know a lot about it. But the idea is to obtain peace, you empty your mind. Get all that content out of there. That is not how it works in the Christian life. To become calm and quiet in your soul is absolutely to fill your mind with content. 
Content about God. Content about the Lord Jesus Christ. Content about the Spirit. And for that content to silence the storms and the tumult and the noise of your life and to experience the peace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace that passes understanding. And David describes the spirit of calm and quiet with a simile or an analogy. He says in verse 2, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. The unweaned child, the child that's being breastfed, right? Picture of unrest, of noise, of irritation. That, that little baby, when he's on his mama's lap, there's one thing he's thinking about. This is getting my way. I need milk now. And I'm going to cry about it, and I'm going to flail about it, and thrash about it. And everyone in the house is going to know, I'm not getting what I want. It's a picture of, of unrest, the unweaned child. But then you see that same baby two weeks later, and he's been weaned. And he, he just crawls up into mama's lap. Not because he needs milk right now, because his stomach's aching and he's not getting his way. He just, he's up there because that's the happiest place in the world to be. He's just quiet and contented, playing on his mama's lap. Perfect picture of contentment. What a picture. My soul needs to become like an unweaned child. Excuse me, a weaned child. Just sitting in the lap of God. Content, not thrashing about, making all this kind of noise, demanding my way, but at peace. Restful, calm, quiet. And listen to me. I, I keep returning to David's biography here. This is not an experience of a, a weaned child type heart when you're on vacation at the beach. This is talking about the sort of heart you can possess when the cancer diagnosis comes. Prematurely. Even then you could have a calm and quiet disposition. When, when a, a loved one passes away, you can have a weaned child kind of soul. When you get terminated at your job, treated unfairly, you can have this sort of calm and quietness. That's how it was for David. Contentment in the midst of hardship. You can say with the hymn writer, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it's well with my soul. Third and final question of the quiet soul. With what does David calm and quiet his soul? He doesn't exactly say, he says, I've just calmed and quieted my soul. Well, how'd you do it? Did you apply a medicine? What did you do? I think we can safely conclude that David quieted, calmed and quieted his soul with the Lord himself and the truth about him. Otherwise, why would he be telling Israel in the next verse, hope in the Lord? <laughs> like, okay, I found something else that's really working for me. You hope in the Lord, though, good luck with all that. You see, I hoped in the Lord. That's what happened. In the midst of all the unrest and the pride and the self-exaltation, I had to quiet my soul and I was calm. How did I do that? I hoped in the Lord. I preached truth to myself about him and about his ways. Now, I don't think I'm speculating when I say that. Because many of the precise Hebrew words that are used in Psalm 131 are also used in Psalm 62. Just give us a little more detail. Psalm 131 is very terse and brief. Let me just read these few verses from Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8, and you'll see how David actually does this. How he uses truth about God to silence his soul. Psalm 62, verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Literally, be quieted. For God alone, be quiet. For my hope is from him. So I'm not waiting for a raise. 
I'm not waiting for the best case scenario diagnosis. I'm waiting for God. I'm not hoping in my GPA. I'm not hoping in my 401k. I'm hoping in God. Now verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My righty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. David understood there was certain content in God. It's my rock, my salvation, my fortress, my glory, my refuge. This is all bound up in who the Lord is to David. And that's how David calmed and quieted his soul. He filled it up with God, who is his refuge, who is his salvation, who is his rock. David says, if I have him, if my hope is in him, and therefore my soul is quieted and content, I've got everything I need if I have him. I don't need to be warned by any fires of the world, external arguments, external things, as Burroughs says. I possess that flame within myself because I have God in my heart. He is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 73, the strength of my life and my portion forevermore. David delighted himself in the Lord. He hoped in God. And that leads us to our third and final point this morning, very briefly. We've seen the proud heart, the quiet soul. Thirdly, you have the summons to God's people. O oh, Israel, O oh, Christian church, O oh, Emmanuel church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He says, everybody, be like this. I've opened up the inner chambers of my heart. I've shown you the Christian experience I've experienced. You can have this too. Psalm 131 is not David super Christian. It's David archetype Christian. You know what an archetype is? It's, it's, it's an original from which the others are imitated. You have an archetype car. All the rest of the car is going to be based off the original model. David said, we should all be like this. We can all be possessed of an inner calm and quietness of soul. Can you imagine if this were the norm? We live in such a stressed out culture, such an anxious culture, such a depressed culture. Can you imagine if Christians just walked around from day to day in the midst even of hardship and trial and they're just possessed with inward peace and calm and quiet? Well, may this not be so rare, though it never ceases to be precious. Well, in conclusion, my time is coming to an end. I want to apply this text to three types of individuals, very briefly, just to sort of give this text some feet. Okay, how do we apply this text to our lives? So first of all, I want to apply this text to those who are discontented and disappointed. You say, in my life right now, I'm discontented, I'm disappointed. Life has not turned out like you thought it would. You're disappointed in your work, you're not passionate about it. Uh, you, you are not content with your circumstances. What does Psalm 131 have to say to you? Listen, Psalm 131 doesn't fix any of those problems. Like, my, my boss is just such a jerk, and it's such a hassle working for him. This text does not make your boss a nicer guy. This text doesn't put money in your bank account. What this text wants to teach us is that we don't have to find contentment in those external things. I could have a job I'm not super excited about. You know, we could be struggling to make ends meet, but I can have this sort of fire within me that warms my heart and my life. 
I can have a calm and quiet soul, even in the midst of those things that would cause discontentment. You're discontent with your circumstances if you're looking to the circumstances to content you. But if I'm looking to God, who is the strength of my life and my portion forever, if I'm hoping in Him, oh, I could have the peace and quiet and calm inwardly. I could have contentment even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of disease, even in the midst of the death of loved ones who are close to me. I can have that sort of stillness and quietness and calmness before the Lord. So I just encourage you, look for your contentment elsewhere in God. And you'll find that you have energy and enthusiasm and grace to carry out your day-to-day life and your day-to-day circumstances. Secondly, I want to apply this text for those who are anxious. Those who are anxious. Now there's a type of anxiety, personally I believe, that is purely physiological. And it should be addressed in its own way. I'm not talking about that type of anxiety. Okay? There's also a type of anxiety that the Bible calls sin. We are anxious about the future and circumstances, things like that, uh, in a way that doesn't trust God. So the Bible seems to teach there are certain anxieties that Christian people should be immune from. For example, Christians do not have to be anxious about the course this world is taking. Why? We have a worldview that equips us with the truth that God is sovereign. He's on the throne. He directs the courses of affairs. Uh, uh, The king's heart is in God's hands. We don't have to worry because we're Christians. So we're immune from that anxiety. We're immune from anxiety over our wealth. Isn't that Jesus' logic? He says, do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. So I don't have to worry about moth and rust as a Christian. Where thieves break in and steal. I don't have to worry about that. Because my treasure is laid up in heaven. So my accounts at the bank are FDIC insured. It's only as good as the federal government, right? My accounts in heaven are insured by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I don't have to be anxious if my treasure is there. It's safe. It's hid with him in heaven. So Christians, we're immune to anxiety over wealth. We're to some degree immune over anxiety about our health, right? Paul is awaiting what is the equivalent of a terminal diagnosis in Philippians 1. He says, I don't know if they're going to kill me or not. But you know what? If I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's game. I don't have to sweat this one. You can have that kind of peace, that kind of confidence going into the hospital, awaiting, do I have stage 5 cancer or not? Am I going to live beyond the new year or not? You don't have to possess that sort of anxiety as a Christian. I'm not minimizing concern over family and legitimate type wisdom things we have to think through. But there are certain anxieties Christians are meant to live without. Christian, God's plan for you is to possess a calm and quiet soul. But you say to me, I still struggle though. I still experience anxiety and fearful about the future. I'm overrun with worry. There's no pat answer to this. You need to bury your head in Psalm 131. You need to know something of what Dr. Lloyd-Jones was talking about. Inner soul conversations. Inward maneuvers of soul where we are perpetually, day in, day out, preaching truth to ourselves. You need to pray without ceasing. You need to pray back to God His promises in the Word. You need to read good books. You need to be in God's Word daily. And that won't cure you of anxiety. But if you devote yourself to a long obedience in a fixed direction day by day, you will find little by little you will be free from anxiety yet. 
certain anxiety we can rid ourselves of and we can possess a calm and quiet soul. Thirdly and finally, for the suffering and the hurting. And I am aware in this church of some suffering and hurting for some of you. My time is really gone. I just have time to read a quote, really. This goes back to Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel. The context of, of this quote is when a Christian is suffering and hurting and really can't understand the reason why. Like, like he or she is using the reason, looking at the hardship and the tryout, I can't make sense of it. Why is this happening to me? The Christian has employed reason to try to make sense of it and just can't make out why God has brought this into his or her life. Here's the quote from Burroughs. We'll close with this. O oh, Christian, if you have faith in the time of extremity, that's the time of suffering, time of trial. If you have faith in the time of extremity, think thus. This is the time that God calls for the exercise of faith. What can you do with your faith if you cannot quiet your heart in discontent? So what do you get by being a believer, a Christian? What can you do by your faith? Burroughs says, I can do this. I can in all states cast my care upon God, cast my burden upon God. I can commit my way to God in peace. Faith can do this. This, therefore, when reason can go no higher, let faith get on the shoulders of reason and say, I see land. The reason cannot see it. I see good that will come out of all this evil. Exercise faith by often resigning yourself to God, by giving yourself up to God and His ways. The more you, in a believing way, surrender up yourself to God, the more quiet and peace you will have. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray together.